This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? <laughs> uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for these super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
everyone, and welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 113. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Neighbor. Thank you for listening to Fruit Loops. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yes. <laughs> Give Fruit Loops a hand clap of praise. Hey, <laughs> maybe it's too soon. You might hate this episode. Hang on. Uh, so Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their or the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. Uh-uh. That's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Luis Alfredo Garavito, a Colombian serial killer who was convicted of murdering 138 boys in the 1990s. Mm. Well, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay. I'm uh, just feeling a little down this week. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't know why. I think uh, COVID plays mind games on me because mm. sometimes I'm absolutely fine and then I get into a funk for a little while, but I'll be okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, maybe it's just this case because I hate this guy. <laughs> hey, same, 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 same. Yeah, there has, you know, I uh, agree. Uh I, too, have been down. <laughs> the de- my depression's got the best of me. Give me that Zoloft, doctor. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so what I've been doing is listening to Les Miserables. That Ooh. soundtrack has been giving me life oh, all wow. week. Uh, and ironically, it's music about life-sucking in society. Yeah. Uh, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and there's an epidemic of cholera. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how it fits? So <laughs> I yeah, just... I don't, on, I don't know how that's lifting you up, but uh, you well, do you, boo. <laughs> I am telling you, I'm like on the treadmill, I dreamed a dream in time gone by and then 2020 happened and my dreams were gone. <laughs> I mean, I just... Uh, yeah, so that's that has been... Um, my my I I haven't Your listened to many to podcasts. Places. Yeah, I haven't um listened to you know Spotify is like here's new music for you every every Monday Wendy. Uh uh-uh, uh, not interested. Just give me that lemes <laughs> on repeat, y'all. I'm Sean Valjean. I mean, at the end of the day, you'll be nothing but trouble. I mean, come on, just just bangers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if you put a trap beat to some of this. It'd be awesome. Yeah. It would be good. Get ready, SoundCloud rappers. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that. Uh, give that a try, Beth. <laughs> musicals. Okay. I think right, musicals, musicals are what I'm getting at as uh, medicine. Okay, the, I'm, I'm going to try that this week. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, let's get into some listener letters. Well, hello. Thank you, angels. That'll do, angels. <laughs> What's in that bag, Beth? Well, we got a review from Addie Alley on Apple Podcasts who said, I love y'all, but hate the air horn. I saw that <laughs> review and I was like, oh, shit, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> then they said, am I going to keep listening despite the air horn? 100% yes, <laughs> despite my sensitive ears. <laughs> Ooh, I love the discussions of socioeconomics, racism and inequality and the impact on the justice system. I have to wonder how many of these folks wouldn't have turned out the way they did if they had proper interventions in school as young children. And I have the same thoughts. Mm. I also believe so many went on for so long because the people of color who were their victims didn't matter to law enforcement, mm, the media or the public. Mm -hmm. I love both of you and keep doing what you're doing. So well, thank you so much, Addie thank Alley. you. Here's what you're going to get, okay? Another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no hip hop air horns for Addie. Uh, just for you, Adelie. But we love you. But I did I did shriek for a second when I saw I hate I was like, whoa, she capitalized it. <laughs> um, yeah, every once in a while we get somebody who hates the air horns, but uh, really? most people like them, so we, we try not to be too heavy on the air horns. Well, sometimes I just sometimes can't help myself. Just, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just got to do it. Sometimes. Uh, so we also got some new patrons. Um, I only came up with one this week and I uh, I apologize um, that I don't have more in in the um, in the cooker, but just wait for next week. So yeah. this is for Hot, Hopscotch McGee, which is a name I absolutely adore. Yeah. So here is your tune, Hopscotch McGee. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Hopscotch McGee. Hopscotch McGee. Hopscotch McGee. <laughs> so, we just want to say thank you so much, Hopscotch McGee. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Luis Alfredo Garavito, a serial killer who was convicted of murdering 138 boys in the 1990s in Colombia, but is suspected of far more. His victims were only boys between the ages of eight, although some say six, and 16. Garavito traveled widely during his killing spree, committing murders in at least 11 of Colombia's 32 departments. He also was suspected of murders in Ecuador. All right. Well, now we are going to get into some stats. This show is heavy on them stats. Yeah. Here we go. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, 
to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my god! Take a deep breath. Oh my god! Take a deep breath. Oh my god! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Luis Alfredo Garavito was born on January 25th, 1957 in Genova, Quindio, Colombia. Uh, his AKAs are La Bestia, The Beast, AKA El Loco, The Crazy One, AKA Tribilin, Goofy uh, is what that means in Espanol, and AKA El Cura, The Priest, AKA The Monster of Genova, and finally Bonaficio Morero Lizcano, which was an AKA he gave himself. Uh, yeah. And if you ask me, that doesn't count. Garavito <laughs> is a Colombian serial killer and rapist. His crimes took place from 1992 to 1999, and his crimes took place all over the country in, um, as Beth mentioned, uh, 32 departments. And he is also believed to be responsible for the murders of some children in the northern part of Ecuador. He admitted to the rape, torture, and murder of 138 boys and teenagers from, as Beth said, ages 6, 6 8-ish to 16 in 1999. However, many believe he is responsible for more than 300 murders. And you might think that sounds like a world record, but you would be wrong. He actually has the second highest body count uh, just behind Harold Shipman, a white physician who killed patients for fun in England. Uh, and uh, third is Pedro Alonso Lopez. And silly me, I thought we had already covered him. The monster of the Andes, also Colombian, but we have not. Not yet, anyway. Uh, and uh, we don't know much about Garavito's victims. We did find some names, which will pepper throughout the story. But we do want to say to all of them, rest in power to those young boys, those young kings. And uh, most of his victims were young boys who were very poor, uh, many of them unhoused or homeless uh, or orphaned. And the crimes took place with the backdrop of a violent civil war in Colombia, which lasted 50 years. They just barely had a ceasefire in 2016. Yeah. Uh, and uh, interesting stats from that time period were that 220,000 civilians died, uh, 25,000 people disappeared, and 5.7 million people were displaced by the violence, and most of those were children. Wow. Most of the known murders took place in the western department of Risaralda, of which Pereira is the capital. And Pereira is a city in Colombia's western coffee-producing region region. Uh, Garavito often passed himself off as a priest, a social worker, a teacher, or a representative of charitable foundations. At other times, he posed as a disabled or displaced person to garner sympathy. So this episode is going to be 
pretty uh, disturbing. Yes. Graphic. There's a lot of um, talk about torture and sexual assault of children. So if you don't feel like uh, comfortable. Listener discretion is definitely advised. Definitely. Definitely. So now we are going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Colombia, or officially the Republic of Colombia, is located in northwestern South America. It's bordered by Panama on the northwest, Venezuela and Brazil on the east, and Peru and Ecuador on the south. It is more than twice the size of France and includes the San Andres Providencia Archipelago, located off the Nicaraguan coast in the Caribbean, about 400 miles northwest of the Colombian mainland. Oh, now, if you are interested, Colombia is a unitary state, uh, a system of political organization in which most or all of the governing power resides in a centralized government. By contrast, a federal state, such as the United States, unites separate states or other polities within an overarching political system in a way that allows each to maintain its own integrity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) U.S. integrity. Okay, cute. (laughs) Colombia is made up of 32 departments. Uh, They're like states, each headed by an alcalde or mayor and administered by a municipal council. The population is largely concentrated in the mountainous interior where Bogota, the national capital, is situated on a high plateau in the northern Andes Mountains. Its population is heavily mestizo, that means mixed of European and uh, indigenous descent, with substantial minorities of European and African ancestry. They were no stranger to slavery. The economy is traditionally based on agriculture, particularly coffee and fruit production. Colombia is the most populous nation of Spanish-speaking South America. Its topography, together with its location near the equator, creates a wide diversity of climates, vegetation, soils, and crops. In Colombia, you will find all four seasons, which remain virtually unchanged throughout the year. This means that you can find snowy mountain peaks, warm Caribbean beaches, and tropical rainforests at any time of the year. Isn't that, that cool? That does sound really cool. Yeah. Uh, there is so much to Colombia's history, and it is very complex. So we cannot cover it all. Sorry, y'all. But we are going to touch on some of its more recent history pertinent to this particular story. Even then, to be honest, we are really just skimming the surface. Yeah, it's pretty complex. Yeah. The nation's political instability has has been historically tied to the unequal distribution of wealth in the illicit dr- trade in drugs, mainly cocaine. In the early 20th century, Colombia was a quote, banana republic, a term which is used to describe a politically unstable country with an economy dependent upon the exportation of a limited resource product, such as bananas or minerals, under economic exploitation by U.S. corporations. Mm. In Colombia, this was specifically the United Fruit Company. And a side note, or caucasity corner. Hey, (laughs) I like this. Tell me more. (laughs) The American writer O. Henry, who we talked about in the Austin Axe Murderer episode, coined the term Banana Republic to describe the fictional Republic of Anchuria in the book Cabbages and Kings, which was published in 1904. 
It's a book of short stories inspired by his experiences in Honduras, where he lived for six months, mm. hiding in a hotel while he was wanted in the U.S. for embezzlement. Oh, oh, <laughs> that was a surprise ending. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. OK. Uh, does Banana Republic, it always sound like a benign kind of thing, right? Yeah. Until you really learn about. Look uh, into it. Yeah. And remember that store, Banana Republic? The br- there was a brand. Oh, yeah, I don't know if it's still around. Yeah, but, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Maybe they should be ashamed of themselves. I don't know. Maybe. I can't afford it anyway. <laughs> uh, in the early 20th century, the United Fruit Company, a multinational American corporation, was instrumental in the creation of the Banana Republic phenomenon. Together with other American corporations and with occasional support from the United States government. <laughs> Uh, The corporations created the political, economic and social circumstances that established banana republics in Central American countries. Among the Honduran people, the United Fruit Company was known as El Pupo, the octopus, because its influence pervaded Honduran society, controlled their country's transport infrastructure, and sometimes manipulated Honduran national politics with anti-labor violence. Uh, Yeah, um... I'm sure we'll get into this. Typically, a banana republic has a society of extremely stratified social classes, usually a largely impoverished working class and ruling class plutocracy. Basically, a society that is ruled and controlled by rich people and a corrupt national government abets the business policies and labor practices of foreign corporations, which brutally oppresses the workers. Much of the background of the Colombian conflict is rooted in La Violencia, a 10-year civil war fought from 1948 to 1958. We covered this a little bit in our episode on Griselda Blanco. The fighting was done mostly in the countryside and the violence ranged from assault on people and property to brutal inhumanity. Certain death and torture techniques became so commonplace that they were given names. For example, picar para tamal, which involves slowly cutting up a living person's body or boca chiquear, which where hundreds of small punctures were made until the victim slowly bled to death. Uh, There were numerous other torture techniques and acts of atrocities carried out, for example, hangings and crucifixion. Yikes. Yeah. The acts of violence were so savage that many people completely lost sight of the reasons for La Violencia, which had stemmed from a fight between the Colombian Conservative Party and the Colombian Liberal Party, but it soon spun out of control. Bandits and mobs sought plunder and and or vengeance, which contributed to the bloodshed. So La Violencia was characterized by partisan political rivalry, rural banditry, and extreme violence. Uh, It was an extremely complex phenomenon that the United States had a hand in. Oh, yeah. But the basic cause was the refusal of successive governments to accede to the people's demands for socioeconomic change. La Violencia brought unprecedented havoc in Colombian towns and villages. It is estimated that, and uh, Wendy touched on this earlier, 200,000 people lost their lives in the period between 1946 and 1964, and an estimated 1 million people were displaced from their homes. On uh, May 10, 1957, moderate conservatives and liberals agreed to unite under a bipartisan coalition known as the National Front, and the government included a system of presidential alternation and power sharing both in cabinets and public offices. But guerrilla movements, uh, and every time I see that word, I'm like, or when you see it, 
obviously guerra right uh, you know what it is right but when you hear it and you're a child you're like why the fuck are gorillas fighting why are they so why are the gorillas so mad who made these gorillas so angry why are these gorillas moving all over the place gorilla movements yeah and (laughs) exactly uh movements had risen from the anarchy of the war were fully established in the 1960s and la violencia has had lasting effects on the country during the cold war era colombia was one of the largest recipients of U.S. counterinsurgency military aid and training. Going back to 1962, the U.S. was instrumental in setting up and perpetrating covert paramilitary networks with intimate connections with the Colombian military. The initial idea was to fight communism and root out communist sympathizers. These uh, right-wing paramilitaries carried out a dirty war, a war conducted by the military or secret police, of a regime against revolutionary and terrorist insurgents. Uh, quote unquote, and marked by the regime's use of kidnapping, torture and murder with members of the civilian population often being the victims. Colombian paramilitary groups regularly target human rights activists, indigenous leaders and community activists, and are responsible for many of the human rights abuses committed in Colombia. These paramilitary groups also control a large majority of the illegal drug trade. Surprise! Yeah, surprise. (laughs) Um, And uh, in 1964, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, was formed as the military wing of the Colombian Communist Party. The FARC supports a redistribution of wealth from the wealthy to the poor and opposes the influence of that multinational corporations and foreign governments, particularly the United States, have had on Colombia. But its tactics have been just as bloody. In the late 1970s, the illegal cocaine trade took off and became a major source of profit. By 1982, cocaine surpassed coffee as a national export, making up 30 percent of all Colombian exports. Many members of the new class of wealthy drug barons began purchasing enormous quantities of land. By the late 1980s, drug traffickers were the largest landholders in Colombia and wielded immense political power. This is kind of like a tangent, but uh, Escobar, right, the Colombian drug lord, he had like a whole bunch of animals on his property, on his big ass property, including hippopotamuses. Oh my which God. I guess are not <laughs> native to Colombia. Wow. And uh, people are like, like Colombian uh, officials are like, what should we do about all these hippos? Should we sterilize them? Should we, you know, uh, eliminate what, them? Yeah. Uh, what do we do? <laughs> because hippos will kill you. Yeah. Uh, they're, anyway. they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not, just cute little hippos. They are not cute or friendly. <laughs> they will tear you up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the FARC began collecting taxes from the numerous cannabis growers in the South and later expanded that to include coca leaf plantations. Uh, the FARC began kidnapping en masse and extorting large and small businesses. And in the early 1980s, the FARC began taxing cocaine laboratories that operated in their areas of influence. The FARC has carried out bombings, assassinations, hijackings, and other armed attacks against various political and economic targets in the country. It has also kidnapped foreigners for ransom, executing many of its captives. 
Beginning in 1981, members of the Medellin Cartel, the Colombian military, the U.S.-based corporation Texas Petroleum, uh, the Colombian legislature, small industrialists, and wealthy cattle ranchers came together and formed a paramilitary organization known as Muerte Sucuestradores, or MAS, They or MAS, which means war. They formed this organization to defend their economic interests. Notice how not the people, uh, right. to fight against the FARC guerrillas and to provide protection for local elites from kidnapping and extortion. What a group of people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, mean, sorry, I mean, sorry, sorry to you regular schmegular degulars out there. I mean, yeah. uh, it's just, it, it is uh, really unfair. Um, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know. Kind of gross. Super gross uh, for yeah. the government to uh, be willing to do that, um, like with like without hiding it, like in front of people. I can yeah. see you fucking me <laughs> over, uh, <laughs> like not even in secret. Anyway, yeah. By 1983, Colombian Internal Affairs had registered 240 political killings by mass death squads, mostly community leaders, elected officials, and farmers. The following year, the Association. Campesina de Ganaderos y Agricultores del Magdalena Medio. Un aplauso. Woo! Un aplauso. <laughs> un aplauso, Beth. That's a good one. Yeah. Which means Association of Middle Magdalena Ranchers and Farmers, or A-C-D-E-G-A-M. <laughs> oh, boy. We're going to have to say this one this a few times. alphabet soup. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that was created to handle both the logistics and the public relations of the organization and to provide a legal front for various paramilitary groups. A-C-D-E-G-A-M and un aplauso for me. Mesa. Mesa que más aplauda. Mesa que más aplauda. Le manda, le manda, le manda la niña. Sa, sa, sa. I did it, 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 A, C, D, E, G, A, M, worked to promote anti-labor policies and threatened anyone involved with the organizing for labor or peasants' rights. The threats were backed by the MAS, which would come in and attack or assassinate anyone who was suspected of being a quote-unquote subversive. In 1985, the powerful drug traffickers Pablo Escobar, Jorge Luis Ochoa, and Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha began funneling large amounts of cash into the organization to pay for weaponry, equipment, and training. In 1987, it was revealed that paramilitaries had been responsible for more civilian deaths than guerrilla deaths. So more civilians were dying than the people fighting this this war. Right. And you I mean it is all about money. Money. It is all about money. And um the US uh, clearly had a hand in this and um, Absolutely. Yeah. There there was during um funny funny story today my daughter said uh she pulled out a a, a bottle of a beverage and said, "Can I have a glass of Donald Trump?" And it was uh, orange juice. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, your daughter's funny. <laughs> she is very funny. <laughs> and uh, anyway, there uh, during his administration, uh, everyone was like, ah, 
people are coming from South and Central America because the um, literally the um, chickens came home to roost. We had the United States had a hand in destabilizing these countries because the U.S. was getting that paper, too. Everybody wanted a piece of this pie uh, and the people at the bottom suffered and eventually had no place to go. And now you know, are fleeing these horrendous, um, dangerous uh, economic situations, uh, not just in Colombia, but uh, again, throughout Central and South America. And uh, it's partly our fault. In the 1980s and 90s, Colombia's second largest city, Medellin, was a war uh, zone known as one of the most violent cities in the world and the center of Pablo Escobar's drug cartel. Police were afraid to enter many areas as street gangs, F ARC, guerrilla, and paramilitary groups fought for control of the neighborhoods. Murders in the city of about 2 million peaked at 6,349 in 1991. And that's at, a lot. At some point, there was, there was a travel advisory. Americans, don't go there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paramilitaries walked on the rooftops while patrolling the neighborhoods. To maintain control, they imposed strict curfews and shot anyone outside after dark. Sometimes they just dropped large rocks onto passerby so they wouldn't have to waste any bullets. What the fuck? Wow. It was wild. It was wild. It was the wild west of Colombia. Yeah. Uh, In 2016, FARC's leader signed a ceasefire agreement which signaled an end to their 52-year war against the government. Over 10,000 FARC members demobilized and handed in weapons in a process verified by the United Nations. With this action, the Colombian government declared an official end to its conflict with the FARC. The FARC then began a transition into a political party that was guaranteed 10 unelected seats in the Colombian legislature. Compromise. But not all FARC members complied with the agreement. Uh-oh. FARC dissident groups still operate throughout the country. Today, Colombia's government denies the existence of paramilitary groups in the country, but armed conflicts still continue. Well, that's not a happy ending. Um, <laughs> can we go back to talking about this, the climate and the um, yeah, topography? I know. <laughs> yeah, the, the climate and the topography sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, me, oh, my. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer. And I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? 
I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Well, uh, now we're going to get into Luis Garavito's early life. So uh, Garavito, who is mestizo, as we mentioned, that's uh, uh, indigenous mixed with European ancestry, is the eldest of seven siblings and was raised in Western Colombia. Rosadelia and Manuel Antonis were his parents. When he was born and growing up, this was at the same time Colombia was experiencing a lot of political violence. According to some sources, Garavito's mother was a sex worker, and his father was an abusive alcoholic who would force Garavito to watch his mother have sex with Johns. I only found that in one place, so I don't know if that's true. I heard it in a couple podcasts. Oh, okay. I cited them. All right. (laughs) Garavito later said that his father would beat his mother up even when she was pregnant and that his father would sometimes tie Garavito up and beat his mother while young Garavito was forced to watch. Garavito later said that his father was also verbally abusive and would call him a bastard or an imbecile, then beat him. Garavito also admitted that he would uh, sometimes sexually molest his younger siblings and that one time uh, he tore apart two birds are like he ripped their heads off uh, he ripped them apart wow um okay uh check <laughs> check, check on put the... it on your serial killer bingo card <laughs> yeah the... <laughs> torturing animals uh-huh. ding <laughs> <laughs> Garavito acted out in school and eventually dropped out at age 11. He described having his first sexual experience at 12 years old with another young boy, but he said he was viciously raped and tortured by his father's friend. And at age 15, Garavito was also raped by a neighbor. He began drinking heavily like his father, and he also became an abuser. At the age of 16, Garavito lured a young victim with the intent of raping him. That young boy screamed, and the attack was stopped. After he was caught, his father kicked him out of the house. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Here goes. Garavito drifted from job to job, drinking heavily and behaving aggressively until he wore out his welcome and moved on to the next town. He also spent some time in Ecuador. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know why I laughed. <laughs> Just... <laughs> he oh. also took his shit ass train to Ecuador for a while. <laughs> okay. All right. Talk about it, Beth. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Neighbors and acquaintances called him Tribeline, which means goofy. And they described him as someone who enjoyed playing with children. Yeah, I was I, I was when I saw this description, I was looking up like Google images of him. Right. And right. his glasses are apparently his red rimmed glasses are a trademark. And I was like, Goofy didn't wear glasses. Glasses. Um, yeah. But he did have kind of a bigger nose. Yeah, um, he had kind of funny ears, too. Yeah, his ears were not level. Uh, I heard one uh, source give actual measurements of his oh, ears wow. on his head. That's a little, I was like, you little know too, too much. I don't you know need what? that. I'm, just, I'm Wendy. I'm not Beth. And so if that's a detail, <laughs> I can bypass. <laughs> his ears uh, were a little weird. That's about, that's all. <laughs> we yeah. don't need to measure <laughs> we them. Don't need, we don't need the measurements, but they're out there. Um, but... Uh, in the 70s, he held down a job uh, at a bakery for a while, started going to church and joined Alcoholics Anonymous. But he also frequented a park known for sex trafficking of children. In the 1980s, Garavito worked at a grocery store. During his two-hour lunch break, he would travel to a nearby town to rape young children, then return to work. Oh, God. Yeah. He had a relationship with an older woman who had a son and a daughter, but he actually never hurt the women of the children he was in a relationship with. He had other relationships with older women and who had children because that's who he preferred um, because he he was a beard. Yeah, right? he he didn't. He didn't actually want to have sex. And so he was with these older women with children so that he would not have to have sex with them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I feel bad for using the word beard because I don't know if it's uh, acceptable anymore. So cut it out. I, I, well, I've heard a lot of gay people say it. So uh, okay. I, I don't know. Keep yeah. it then. Keep it then. Okay. I just don't want to hurt people. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting aspect of his uh, his yeah tale, sexuality his or yeah. whatever yeah yeah um so but th these women that had children um he never abused the children which is strange uh -huh. um not that I want him to but right. usually when uh, a pedophile is with a woman who has children he's doing he's, it to uh, get close yeah. to to the children. children yes um so anyway jinx. personal jinx I'm just kidding. <laughs> His urges to sexually assault children grew, but he was no longer satisfied with just rape. He began to add torture to his repertoire. He'd use razor blades and flames from candles and lighters to mutilate the children. And in the 1980s, he was raping and torturing children at an average of about one child a month. That's horrifying. And yeah. again, in the context of a chaotic time in the country, just the destruction of children um, went unnoticed. Yeah. Um, in January 1984, Luis Garavito sought psychiatric treatment. Throughout the mid-1980s, in uh, mid he went in and out of inpatient treatment and was medicated with an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. However, while in treatment, he was not honest with his providers about his pedophilia or his sadistic urges. Uh, yeah. He also attempted suicide at least once and was under psychiatric care for five years. But, I mean, who's completely honest with their therapist in the beginning? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you got these issues uh yeah yeah there's, okay. there's, there's no point in getting psychiatric care if you're not going to <laughs> this is this is <laughs> this is not a problem you can just talk out these, no this pedophilia or no i mean urges. if you're hiding the fact that you ate two cookies you know or <laughs> or had a few drinks one night you know that's fine <laughs> yeah 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 it'll come out later yeah but I, something like this <laughs> yeah i could i mean i totally understand why he wanted to keep it close to the vest is well, yeah. there any nobility in him trying um, even though it's a shallow attempt trying, I don't know. I I don't I, know either. I've thought about that too. Like, um, it sounded like he sought treatment because he wasn't comfortable with what he was doing, uh-huh. but, um, then he really didn't get treatment. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I also wonder too, whew, sorry to, I just need to shut my trap, but, um, if, in Colombia, uh, providers have a responsibility to, if you're a danger report. to yourself or others, yeah, yeah. R- a report. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. In 1986, Garavito became obsessed with true crime, murder, and black magic. His murder heroes were Adolf Hitler and Campo Elias Delgado, a I, Colombian... I- but. I was going to say, I was just about to give him an air high five. True crime oh. fans <laughs> unite, but wait. But no. Yeah. <laughs> nah. So Delgado was a Colombian spree killer and self-described Vietnam War vet who killed 29 people and wounded 12 more, including his own mom, people at a restaurant and in an apartment complex before being shot dead, presumably by police. Uh, Yeah, that was <laughs> when I was researching this case. I was like, What? 29 <laughs> people in almost one, in like in one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, so on October 2nd, 1992, at the age of 35, Garavito committed his first known murder, that of Juan Carlos, a teenage boy. Garavito lured Juan Carlos to a secluded area where he raped the boy, tortured his feet, knocked out his front teeth, and cut off his genitals. Oh, God. Uh on October 8th, 12-year-old Alexander Paderanda was raped and killed by Garavito. He killed eight more boys in Bogota, Colombia in 1993. In the 1990s, many Colombian boys between the ages of 8 and 16 were reported missing or found dead, their bodies brutally mutilated and bearing signs of sexual assault. Unfortunately, in Colombia, because of the high rates of poverty and violence and a large population of street children, the deaths of poor young boys went unnoticed. Garavito targeted boys with more European features like blonde hair and blue eyes. As we mentioned earlier, Garavito is mestizo. So we just wanted to say welcome to Culture Corner um, with Wendy and Beth. I just wanted to talk about colorism in Colombia, Latin America and the Spanish Caribbean um, and It is uh, a classification system that stems from colonization and is harmful to communities of color. Um, Garavito being mestizo would be more brown and have more indigenous features. And colorism is the preferential treatment of those who are lighter skinned than those with darker skin or the preferential treatment of those who more closely resemble the colonizer. And it's not just skin color, though. It's also hair texture and color and facial features, right? A more narrow nose. And Garavito had a wider nose. Uh, Straight 
straight hair uh, is known as good hair, quote unquote. And uh, again, as I said, European features like a narrow nose, thin lips, lighter eyes are seen as uh, having an individual having more value. And again, the closer you are to the colonizer, the further you are from oppression. And Garavito had a very difficult childhood. And it was interesting to me that he targeted children who looked nothing like him, who maybe yeah. in his mind didn't suffer like he did. Anyway, that's where Something I was going. like that. Yeah. yeah. Garavito's M.O. evolved as his crimes went on. He began stabbing children with a knife or screwdriver as he raped them. Apparently, he would stab the children's extremities to prolong their deaths. And at least one source said that he would disembowel the children while they were still alive. Beth, I can tell that that is very hard for you to read yes, aloud. It is. Yeah. Um, Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <sighs> In 1993, Garavito tortured and murdered at least 11 boys by decapitating them. One of the victims was able to fight back and severely injured Garavito's hand, but the 12-year-old boy, whose name we unfortunately do not know, was not able to escape with his life. In February 1994, Garavito murdered 13-year-old Jaime Andres Gonzalez, and by the end of 1994, Garavito had raped and killed nearly 30 children. Mm. In 19 95, Garavito broke his leg, leaving him with a limp. That year, he killed four more boys in one region. The bodies were dumped on a hillside somewhat hidden by foliage. In June of 1996, a boy went missing in Boyaca, Colombia. Garavito was questioned by police after he was seen giving candy to numerous boys in the area, but he was released. After he was released, the missing boy's body that they were looking for and apprehended him for was found, and he had been decapitated and his genitals were severed and stuffed inside the corpse's mouth. Hmm. Can you imagine uh, coming across that crime scene? You would just be horrified, uh, and, horrified. and just messed up for life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, reading about it is quite disturbing, but I can't yeah. imagine in, in real life. And I yeah. don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to either. <laughs> Garavito was then off to the next town, Tunja, where he killed another young boy, 12-year-old Renald Delgado. Renald had last been seen in the company of a man. That man was Luis Garavito, and he was brought in for questioning. He accused them of discriminating against him due to his disability because he had a uh, limp. And eventually the police let him go again due to insufficient evidence. That's twice now that he slipped through their fingers. Yeah. Um, in uh, Risaralda, Colombia, Garavido murdered Jorge Andres Brown, a 10-year-old boy who hustled by selling sweets. In 1997, Garavito moved to Bogota. There, he pretended to be a clergyman, and he was able to lure and murder three boys, including an 8-year-old. So um, now we are going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Several mass graves containing the bodies of children began being found around the country, which even for Colombia was unusual. Outside of Villa Vincencia, the bodies of 13 young boys were found. In November 1998, in Nasideros, another 14 children's bodies were found. On February 6, 1999, more bodies were found in Palmera. Oh, my God. 
God. I know. Um, I hate this story. It's just horrifying. Yeah, me too. The bodies had numerous cuts from blades or knives. The victims were determined to be Caucasian boys between the ages of 8 to 14. The identities of the victims could not be determined via dental records uh, because there were no dental records, which was an indication that these boys were very poor. Yeah. In order to try to identify the victims, facial reconstructions were made, even though facial reconstructions of children were not common because the Mm -hmm. standards are for adult victims. So the artist had to figure out how to do it himself. Eventually, the facial reconstructions of four boys were recognized by family members. Also found at the Palmeira site were the killer's underwear, shoes, and partially burned glasses. Uh, The red glasses that if you Google image this gentleman... Gentlemen, why would I call him that? This monster, you will uh, be able to see. A detective, Carlos Herrera, began analyzing the items for clues. He found that the wear on the right shoe indicated that the suspect walked with a limp, and detectives were able to estimate his height between five foot four and five foot six. The prescription of the glasses indicated that the suspect was over 40 and the arms of the glasses were bent, indicating that the killer may have oddly placed ears. There was also money found at the scene, 180,000 pesos, which had been distributed in the southern part of the country and at the border of Ecuador, indicating the killer had moved around the country. Because of the charring of the glasses and other elements found at the crime scene, investigators also concluded that the suspect had probably burned himself severely. While investigating the scenes of the mass graves, patterns started to emerge. Many of the skeletal remains were discovered still tied up with nylon rope and discarded liquor bottles. All of the same brand were frequently found nearby. Traces of wax had also been found at the crime scenes, making investigators think maybe the murders were a result of a satanic cult. Another motive they considered was drug trafficking paybacks. But ultimately, because of the placement of the bodies and the wounds on the bodies, investigators came to the inevitable conclusion that there was just one killer and that the crimes were sexual in nature. And in 1998, a task force was formed to try to catch the child murderer. Aldemar Duran, a detective who was investigating the deaths of three children in Genova and the similarities between the crime scenes in other parts of the country, noticed the commonalities among the victims, who were all impoverished children from the streets of Colombia. He had his officers go undercover amongst the unhoused, impoverished population to keep an eye out. Records on pedophiles were pulled and detectives began combing through these records and narrowing down the suspects based on what they knew about the killer. They discarded files where the victims were girls and looked for suspects that fell within that height and age range and who had committed crimes in the areas where the majority of the victims were found. They came up with 25 names and Luis Garavito was one of them. Detective Duran then came across the case from 1996 in Tunja, which involved the appearance and death of Renal Delgado, where Garavito had been questioned. The characteristics of his death were similar to those they were investigating. Duran noted that Garavito was from Genova, the town where the three cases he was investigating had taken place. Garavito had also listed his current residence as Trujillo, which was another place where bodies had been found. In Pereira, two more bodies of boys were found and it appeared that they had been tortured and sexually abused. A man named Pedro Pablo Ramirez Garcia, who had a long record of committing sexual abuses against children in Pereira, was picked up. He limped from the same leg as the suspect. He was 44 
and his height was within range, and a boy identified him as the man who tried to rape him. So police thought they had their man. But uh, Ramirez Garcia said he was innocent. And while he was in jail, four more children were murdered in Bogota under similar circumstances as the other crimes. He actually was innocent, at least of these crimes. Yeah. Garavito's family was tracked down and one of his sisters was contacted. She told investigators that she didn't know where he was, but she had some of his belongings. She turned over a large black bag containing documents, photographs, and mementos and some notebooks. A receipt for a money order wired to a woman in Pereira was also found in the bag. Officers tracked her down and retrieved from her another bag full of items belonging to Garavito. In it were newspaper clippings about the murders, bus tickets from places where bodies were found, photographs, lottery tickets, rope fibers, razors, and lubricants. It was also discovered that in Pereira, Garavito had sought help at a pharmacy for burns on his left arm, his side, and one leg. Remember that investigators believed their suspect had burned himself at one of the crime scenes. On October 22, 1999, in Villa Vincencio, Ivan Sobogal, 12 years old, didn't come home at the normal time and his panicked parents reported him missing to police. He, like many other children in the area, would sell lottery tickets to earn money to pay for his school books and supplies. Geravito had lured Ivan to a secluded area and attacked him, attempting to rape him. An unhoused man nearby heard young Ivan's screams. The unhoused man was able to stop Garavito, and Ivan was was able to run away and get help. The police were contacted and the boy was reunited with his mother. As police drove the boy home with his mother, they noticed a man with a limp walking home. Ivan identified the man as his attacker. Police apprehended the man who told them that his name was Bonaficio Morero Lizcano. The man was very calm, not agitated at all. However, investigators were able to identify Lizcano as Garavito through photographs. But for a while, they allowed Garavito to think he had tricked them to keep his guard down. They also took hair from his cell for DNA, which was later matched to DNA on liquor bottles and bodies found at crime scenes. An eye exam proved that Garavito had the same prescription as that of the burned glasses found at the crime scene, and they were most likely his. While he was jailed, investigators were able to recover another bag. Uh, no angels this time, though. It just leaves bags all over the fucking place. <laughs> another plate. bag of Garavito's <laughs> belongings. <laughs> what is the... What is that sound effect we use for the mailbag? It wasn't that kind of bag, though. Uh, this bag contained photos of some of the murdered children and a slip of paper with tally marks on it, which they suspected Garavito used to keep a tally of his murders. Ugh. Garavito was then interrogated and denied everything. But eventually, when faced with all of the evidence, he cracked and admitted to the murders. He then related the details of the crimes. But he claimed that during each murder, he'd been possessed by a malignant spirit. Um, okay, sir. Still doesn't make it okay. I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't buy it. Nope, 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 nope. My spidey sense says... That no. is bullshit. Uh, on October 29th, 1999, police announced that Garavito had confessed to killing at least 140 boys. They said Garavito would befriend the children, gaining their confidence by offering them money or a drink. He would take the victim for a long walk until the child was exhausted. And there 
uh, and they were in a remote location. It was then that he raped, tortured, and killed them. Garavito confessed to additional murders and drew maps to, quote-unquote, help the investigators find the children's bodies. Garavito's confession brought an avalanche of criticism from the impoverished population, who said the police had been indifferent, abusive, or corrupt. They're not wrong. Um, Garavito was diagnosed as a narciss- narcissist with antisocial personality disorder by Dr. Luis Alfonso Farero Para, a psychological profiler who was involved in his case. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial, which is very short of a segment. Yeah, because <laughs> there was no trial. <laughs> Garavito pled guilty to 138 of 172 cases. The sentences for these 138 cases added up to 1,853 years and nine days. But because of Colombian law restrictions, he could not be imprisoned for more than 30 years. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. In addition, because he helped authorities find the bodies, his sentence was decreased to 22 years. So it... uh, 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 uh. Where are they now? I'm dying to know. Uh, so Garavito is currently serving his sentence in a maximum security prison in Valle Dupar in the department of El Cesar in Colombia. He is held separately from the other prisoners because it is, is believed that if he was put in general population, he would be killed. And he would he be. definitely would be. But yeah. I mean, would it Do we be care? wrong? I mean, because uh, he I, the, he's scheduled to become eligible for parole in 2023. I know. I mean, just set him up with one basketball game with the general population, right? With Gen Pop, yeah. Just one meal. See just what one. happens. As a memorial to the murdered boys, scenes of children at play were painted on a hillside at the site where some of the remains were found. At the bottom of the ravine, there is a sign that reads, quote, if we continue with indifference and abandonment, we will never know what happened to the children of Pereira, unquote. That uh, is quite poignant. Um, yeah. So now we're going to get into what we think made Garavito snap as well as our takeaways. Hit it, Beth. Well, many, as we talked about, many of Garavito's victims lived in poor neighborhoods apart from their families. Uh, they could not afford to support them, which is why their disappearances were overlooked mm-hmm. and why it took so long to catch this guy, which uh, all of it is really, really sad. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's a bummer, guys. Yeah. Huge. <laughs> Listen to Lemes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in prepping for this story, I watched a documentary on him called "The World's Worst Serial Killer," uh-huh. and uh, I believe he is. Yep. <laughs> Yep. (laughs) Not just the amount of victims, but that they were children and that he tortured them. And it makes me sick. Mm -hmm. He was abused as a child. And that's, of course, one reason why he became a serial killer. And he was probably influenced by the violence in Colombia, because even if he didn't see it, he probably heard about it. And that probably fueled some of his desires, I guess. Um, But it always baffles me how people who are abused turn to abuse Uh like uh you think a normal person would have empathy for a child who's being abused but this guy he he wants to become the abuser and feel that power and he loved it um yeah and i don't get it i mean technically i i get it because you know i can read all these facts and everything Mm -hmm. but emotionally i I don't it doesn't compute no it doesn't there's there's screws loose. Well, uh, 
this goes without saying, but that is good. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. Okay. <laughs> so this story was uh, very disturbing. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like it. I hate this guy. I'm glad it's over. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, I also think it's uh, terrifying that he, he might be paroled soon. I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, not a fan. <laughs> not, not at all. And he was born in the sixties, so fifties. Okay, so yeah, you know, we were just talking on he's la- older, yeah, yeah, last episode, but still, yeah, about older prisoners being released. And you said something like, "You can still kill people if you have teeth." I don't remember what happened <laughs> that we got into, <laughs> and I was like, "I said, said uh, if they're toothless, yeah, yeah." Meaning, not not. Uh, I guess I meant like not have. No, I don't know what I meant. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but I was like, I I I laughed really hard. But this just just thinking of him being elderly and being released, you he is not any less harmless just because he's older. That's no, what I'm I don't at. think so. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And I think that's what you were getting at. Now that I say that out loud. Yes. So. <laughs> now it's all coming back uh-huh. to me. <laughs> I've solved the case, Johnson. Uh, <laughs> um, so I found an article that quoted Garavito in his own words about what made him snap. Uh, and he said, Lo hice para vengarme de la sociedad, which translates to, I did it to avenge myself of society. Um, he was dealt a real shitty hand as a child. Raped, yeah. molested, abused, abandoned, all in the face of violence in a um in his country. Uh his yeah. experience with poverty, colorism, civil war, things were completely out of his control. Um, and uh hurt people hurt other people. Uh not yeah. an excuse, just an explanation. I feel very sorry for the child that he was. I feel the most pain uh and uh sor- sorry for the children who he harmed, um, because all he ended up doing was perpetuating that suffering. And I I too am baffled by it, Beth. Um yeah. I think uh, a societal critique is in order also. Um, and yeah. while grownups really just couldn't get their shit together in society, meanwhile, children, the most vulnerable among us, suffered in uh, daily in, in, in the worst yeah. ways. And uh, Garavito was a narcissist uh, who, as Beth said, needed to feel powerful. And unfortunately, the dominoes fell in just a way that he was able to do so um, to uh, again, to children. And um, I also wanted to speak to um, Garavito later on in his uh, life became a person with disabilities. And we don't normally get to talk about that part of um the population that doesn't get talked about when we're talking about uh, serial killers. So they're not all straight, cis, white dudes who are able-bodied. Uh, some of them, some of them have, have disabilities. disabilities. Uh, and um, there were, t- it was interesting to me that there were times when he got caught up in the, with law enforcement and he was like, um, he accused them of ableism in order to deflect right. from his fuckery. Um, right. But anyway, like we, we're always like trying to find, Again, cases that don't have to do with straight cis white dudes and also other like other marginalized groups that you, we don't we don't think about often, which includes able bodied people. And Luis Garavito, I feel like we just checked a new box. So <laughs> another take I have is I'm proud to be a part of the Fruit Loops team.
We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Well, y'all, these are from our uh, Fruit Loops Greatest Hits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for nine ninety five, <laughs> two easy payments, you can get the box set of Fruit Loops Greatest Hits. Uh, <laughs> every rose has its thorn. You know, remember when they used to sell those CDs, um, CD box packages of like now six or now five. Colombian records or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd, All... you'd pay a penny and get 10, 10 CDs or yeah. something. Yeah. But there were commercials back in my day records. Yeah, there were commercials for it. And then they would play like a snippet of the song. Oh, yeah. Oh, they play man. a bunch of different songs. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, this isn't that. So <laughs> these are just some general safety tips for kids. Even children should practice keeping their heads on a swivel. And that's a good uh, lesson to teach children uh, and to t- trust their guts. Trust yourself. You know, you're you 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 know you better than anybody. Like I'm your I'm a grown up, but you know um, what feels hinky and what doesn't. I think um, kids just know. So teach children about tricky people, people who ask kids to break the rules or do something that feels thumbs down, um, offers to teach you something for free, says a lot of nice things, give you lots of attention and gifts, or makes you feel guilty for doing something. Yeah. And grown-ups should not be asking kids for help. Kids should know that. Yeah. So. Yeah, because yeah, I think in some of the cases, Garavito uh, was asking them to help him do different things, like carry something or find something. So, uh. yeah, that was one of his tools in his uh, shitty ass box. Predator toolkit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so also teach your kids uh, their address and phone numbers. Oh, yes. And um, have a family code word in case someone stops your kid and says, Hey, your mom told me to come and get you. And if they don't know the motherfucking code word, keep it moving. Bye bye, (laughs) bitch. To the left. To the left. (laughs) Yeah, we also have to consider kids' safety online. So teach kids not to give out personal information, including pictures, not to agree to meet online without checking with parents. Big one, yeah. Yeah. Don't respond to mean messages. That's something that adults need to learn. (laughs) I agree. But here's something surprising. So my daughter's kindergarten virtual school she's learned she's been asking alexa to uh 
how to spell things in the chat. So she's been like chatting with her friends. I had, this is something I had no idea she knew how to do. So oh, wow. now it's like a new, th- we're all ne- learning new things. But anyway, yeah. um, messaging, uh, just keep an eye on the messages that you and that your, your children are sending um, on the internets. And if anything right. feels thumbs down or icky, even on the internets, they can come across online. Uh, so make sure that your kids tell you immediately if, if, if they see something like that. Yeah. And also there's safety in numbers. So um, make sure your kids are going, if they're going somewhere, they're, they're going in a group. Yes. Excellent tips. Thanks, Beth. Um, yeah. We're going to get into the shout out of our shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content uh, by or about people of color, any true crime goodies. Um, and I wanted to shout out um, Handcuffed, a true crime podcast that's mostly about UK cases um, about black people. And I located this pod uh, through the podcast in color directory. Um, oh, and wow. there are some new, cool. yeah, for, for a while, there's not a ton of true crime podcasts um, that represent um, uh, non, non people of color, people of color yeah. and, and um, you know, uh, everybody else who is not a straight white dude. Um, and, but handcuffed is one of them. And also, Uh, a book that I'm reading called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper by Heather McGee. And it's basically a history book about why America can't have nice things. And it's mostly (laughs) because of racism, but it's a really good read um, uh, and uh, fascinating history about, well, that's why we don't have swimming pools in every neighborhood. (laughs) Oh, that's, you know, it, it, it all makes sense. Anyway, what do you got? Well, uh, I wanted to mention that we were recently featured on What's Happening, a podcast by Chisholm Uche Onelafor. Yes. And uh, it was really fun talking to her. It absolutely was. Yeah. And so I wanted to say, check out her podcast and subscribe. It's uh, what's happening, ending with a question mark and an exclamation point. And I only say that because there are several podcasts out there called what's happening. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It was great. Look for the one with the question mark and an exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> uh, what else? Also, I watched Behind Her Eyes on Netflix over the weekend. Oh, did you like it? I did. I didn't think I was going to. Uh-huh. I was, I just was like, God, I'm looking for stuff to watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> just clicking on stuff. Yeah. And, uh, um, I just, I don't know, clicked on it. Yeah. And, uh, it was really good. Awesome. It stars Simona Brown, uh-huh. and it's a it's a total mind fuck. Okay, so. <laughs> okay. I st- I started it. And I got I got sidetracked uh, with Les Mis. So I am going to pick it up again. If you liked it, then um, I'm. I did up. like it. Yeah, and I wasn't. I thought I knew what was happening, but then it it turned out I didn't know what was happening. So. Oh, and you didn't look for spoilers or anything? <laughs> oh no, I don't do that. Oh, I know you like spoilers, but them. I hate spoilers. Tell me all about it when we get off this call. Uh, okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, well, uh, again, that's Handcuffed Podcast, uh, The Sum of Us, a book, and uh, what is it? What's Happening? Question mark, exclamation point, podcast, and Behind Her Eyes on Netflix. And that is all for today, folks. But in the meantime, yeah. Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our 
resources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Podcast app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hello, this is Dr. Grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.